1968, the Whole Earth Catalog birthed the do-it-yourself culture, the very things that would inspire Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. That was the first real holistic attempt to merge what might at first seem like two opposing forces, an organic spiritual vision dedicated to the natural world and a global electronic future that propels the human being toward technological transcendence. I was too young to have gleaned any inspiration from the Whole Earth Catalog, and instead it was a much smaller cultural artifact, a simple line of dialogue from a Steven Spielberg film that would insert itself like an earworm into my unconscious. In the 1981 film Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones' arch-rival Renee Belloc pleads with Jones to try and understand his obsession with the Lost Ark of the Covenant. For Belloc, the desire to claim the vessel that contained the Ten Commandments was more than a mere archaeological wonder. Belloc sees it's a transmitter, a radio for speaking to God. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Bowles and you're listening to 42 Minutes, a podcast about meaning from SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find us online at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Monday, December 10th, 2018, and today for 42 Minutes, we're going on an extraordinary technological quest for the supernatural. And our guide today is the writer Peter Bievergall, author most recently of Strange Frequencies, published this past October by Tarcher Perigee. Strange Frequencies takes readers on a narrative and historical journey to discover how people have used technology in an effort to search for our own immortality. Bivergal builds his own ghostly gadgets to reach the other side, too, and follows the path of famous inventors, engineers, seekers, and seers who attempt to answer life's ultimate mysteries. He finds that not only are technological innovations potent metaphors keeping our spiritual explorations alive, but literal tools, too, through which to experiment the boundaries of the physical world and our own psyches. Peter Biebergall writes widely on the speculative and slightly fringe. His essays and reviews have appeared in TheNewYorker.com, The Times Literary Supplement, Boing Boing, The Believer, and The Quietus. He is the author of Season of the Witch, How the Occult Saved Rock and Roll, Too Much to Dream, A Psychedelic American boy, Boyhood, and The Faith Between Us. Biebergall studied religion and culture at Harvard Divinity School and lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We last spoke with him on this program in the spring of 2015 for episode number 179. We left that discussion with the intention behind the Moog synthesizer, which leads us nicely into today's discussion. Good morning, Peter. How are you doing? Hello. Thanks. Good. Thanks for having me back. It's already been three years. That's crazy. It, time is behaving really strange these days for me. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. But so what was Robert Moog's intention with his synthesizer? Well, he said that he believed that his he and his machine, this wonderful device, right, that basically has changed popular music forever, was that he was just a vessel for essentially the music of the spheres, this sort of universal sound that he believed his instrument um, could tap into. And this idea that technologies can help us reach or achieve or connect with or investigate ideas of transcendence 
is fascinating to me, which is probably why I wrote this book, but even to be able to see it within the work of somebody who, for all intents and purposes, would consider themselves like Robert Moog, a rationalist and engineer. And so there, there does seem to be a place in which we don't have to always have this disconnect between technologies and our spiritual lives, even though the science that makes these technologies possible, the scientific method that really allows for any of these things to exist, like a synthesizer, doesn't, isn't able to quantify or even speak to this idea of spirit at all. And yet our technologies allow us to participate in some of that kind of imagining. Well, so in your introduction, you kind of lead off with this idea of the, the whole Earth catalog, and that roots it roots it in in uh, you know the Silicon Valley in San Francisco, and so like this is you're you're merging kind of this uh, spiritual force with the technological force. What what was the whole Earth catalog, and tell us a bit about it. So the whole Earth catalog store brand's brainchild came out of the idea really that the consciousness expansion that drugs and music and culture, certain cultural phenomena, spiritual cultural phenomena, like an interest in Eastern mysticism and things like that in the, in the 60s counterculture, could be used towards technological and social innovations that wasn't limited simply to consciousness expansion as a means unto itself, but or that it didn't even also have to be limited to a political agenda, say, but rather uh, could inform our future. And our future, he recognized, is dependent on us having a, I think what, what Brand would say, is a reasonable and thoughtful approach to technology. And so if our approach to technology is guided by maybe some of the ethical and spiritual concerns that were uncovered with, say, psychedelic drugs, for example, that we could, in fact, have a technological future, it didn't mean we were, quote, selling out or, right, giving up spirit, that, that those things could be uh, combined. And so he basically put together this catalog of tools and resources. It's really, I mean, it's, they were huge, like the size of, of the yellow pages. And they offered everything from geo, you know, plans for geodesic domes to uh, books on the, suggested books on the I Ching to tools and other, uh, you know, new uh, do-it-yourself uh, computer type projects. So it really was looking again, towards the future, a technological future specifically, but one that could, that didn't have to abandon uh, spirit. Not that it, God was part of the whole earth catalog or that there was a belief in the supernatural attached to it, but there was an idea that, the, that we as makers, that we as inventors could, could be, and, and I think in many ways we're still channeling sort of what, say, magicians um, occult magicians or shamans had always been doing. And in fact, the very first sentence of the whole earth catalog is something I may be misquoting is we have become as gods. We may as well get used to it. Well, as you were describing it, it made me realize this is kind of like an analog version of Amazon a little bit. Yes. Yeah. Except that it's not governed by 
um, poor ethical <laughs> practices, <laughs> or also buy an idea that it's intended to be a monopoly. I mean, you didn't buy things directly from the Whole Earth Catalog. You learned about them so that you could go and try to discover them for yourselves. I mean, but it's interesting you say that because I remember when Amazon first came on the scene, I actually sort of saw it as a catalog. Like I didn't feel obliged to buy things from Amazon. At first, it was really like this amazing uh, book review place. You know, I would go and I would look to see, read reader reviews, get recommendations. It was all about books. And sometimes I bought from Amazon, sometimes I didn't. But it, 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 it had this sort of slow... Uh, encroachment and suddenly they were selling CDs, but that seemed okay. But then the next thing you know, they're selling everything, right? From tools to housewares to clothes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember their strange ads from the early 90s too that like their warehouse was on the moon or something because it needed to be so giant or it was. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but so that. Um... One of the stories you shared about toward toward the beginning of the book also is this idea of uh, of a circuit on paper that was achieving achieving the spiritual result that this person set out to do, but the engineer realized that the circuit was wrong, and once he corrected the actual circuitry on paper, that the the machine achieved the result that everyone said it did, which you know was boggling the mind. But it reminded me of this. Uh, something similar in a Thomas Pinchon book, The Crying of Lot 49, there's like this perpetual motion machine also on paper. And so that was an interesting little uh, synchronicity f for me just because the show had spent some time with that book. But tell us the story about, you know, what what the heck that, that was, that the whether you made the machine in reality versus whether it's on paper, it still was achieving the same spiritual result. Yeah, well, so the larger um, school of thought is called radionics, but it essentially is the uh, began with a patented device by a, a fellow named Thomas Galen Hieronymus, who developed this machine that needed to be powered and had electronic circuitry that allowed the user to be part of the experience of recognizing certain um, materials. So you would be able to know whether or not you were touching gold by no longer having to touch the gold, but by touching a certain plate because you had already set certain uh, dials that they recognize as gold. It's a very complicated device in that way. But there was also the idea that you could use this sort of for wishes, that you could place your intention on the, on the board and by setting, quote, these dials in a certain way, that your wish became sort of part of this circuitry of an actual natural field of, um, of, of meaning or, or field of nature. And so uh, John W. Campbell, who at the time was the editor of Astounding Science Fiction in the 50s, got a hold of one of these, basically because he wanted to debunk it. But he actually found that by making some adjustments, it worked. He also found that you didn't even need to plug it in for it to work. And the further developments 
people claim that all you have to do is draw a picture of the schematic for it to work. And further developments showed that, in fact, you didn't even need to draw the schematics. You just need to draw a very basic outline of the machine. So there's lots of YouTube videos and things about um, about radionics and how that works. But again, the idea is that there's this this sort of relationship not only between technology and how it can measure um, nature and the world around us, but radionics says that the human being, the operator, can insert their own self into that relationship and cause certain kinds of change to occur, which essentially is what magic is, right? It's sort of often defined as causing change to occur based on Alistair Crowley's definition, causing change to occur accordance with our will. So all these things where you insert the human being into the equation, you are in some ways activating, I think, that part of ourselves where we, where we believe or, or, or participate in this, uh, this thing we've over the, over the millennia have called magic. Which kind of brings up this. So it seems like there is this space that kind of straddles realms where you have stage magicians who are putting on a show, but at the same time, there is real magic happening there or things that are difficult to explain rationally. Could you talk about that world a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think what you're having is you're having a change in consciousness. And so why is a change in consciousness not as a real thing as anything we say is happening? So you could say that when the magician performs a trick, that there's some maybe technology that allows us to be um, moved by that or uh, enchanted by those moments. But the change in consciousness is no less real than the thing that's actually happening. And this is, in some ways, the the origins of, of theater and performance. We may even have talked about this when we were talking about Season of the Witch and Rock and Roll and the way in which, you know, the performative elements of all of these things, actually, there is a transference of some something between the performer and the audience, whether it's the shaman, whether it's Jimmy Page and Robert Plant, or whether it's a stage magician. Now, obviously, in, in most of those cases, we can say, well, I know what was actually happening. There was a guy who was playing his guitar plugged into an amplifier, right? There's no magic there. But there is something that happens where uh, our consciousnesses are altered, something is raised, our imaginations are at play. And I think it's we shouldn't limit that to say just because it's happening in our imagination that it's any less valuable to what it means to be human and to the way in which we interact with ourselves in the world. About the same time that I was really reading your book, a gentleman by the name of Ricky Jay passed away, and I wasn't familiar. I know, it's terribly sad, yeah. I wasn't familiar with him at all, but because I was reading all about this stage magic, I really, you know, gave his life a look, and that—that that was he. What an interesting guy he is. Yeah, I mean, I don't know much about his life. I mean, but I've you know watched videos of him. He's also been um, in a number of, of films. He's had bit parts in, um, you know, movies like uh, House of Games with Joe Mantegna. It's a, a great movie, a, a, a David Mamet film. Um, so, you know, he was sort of a, a, a magician slash celebrity, but he wasn't um, the type who wanted to, you know, to make the uh, the Eiffel Tower disappear, right? He was interested in this very close 
up sleight of hand magic that requires, you know, in many ways, a lot of suspension of disbelief, the ability to sort of shift our imaginations in new ways. And I think he was able to, even though he, you knew he was doing a trick that he is that kind of magician that can really create these, these states of enchantment. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely got that impression from him too. But so in your book, you definitely go on this this uh, long quest, and you start with the. It seemed like we may have been in in similar reading territories for for times too. But because I've definitely had some interest in golems and automatons, um, what was it you know about the golem that was was calling out to you, or that was of interest in this? Well, partly it's that I was trying to dis- trying to sort of do an archaeology, as it were, an anthropology of the way in which people use technology to try to interact with some notion of spirit or God or the divine or the supernatural. And I found that it seemed that we could we could really unpack this idea of technology really to mean any material a component that is manipulated in a way to achieve a certain kind of result in nature or in ourselves. And the golem sort of functions as, I think, a very early, at least legend, as it were, of somebody sort of taking something and using it in a way that it wasn't originally intended to be used or thought it could be used. So you take some clay and you form it into the figure of a, of a person, and then you inscribe a certain uh, Hebrew word or other secret name on its forehead or you put it in its mouth or all this different legends and and stories have very different ways that the golem is activated. But again, you're having this place in which the human being is sort of trying to, I don't think it's just about trying to be a god. I think it's trying to assert themselves within, you know, how the divine works and that we don't have to only pray that we or that we can actually participate in the actual function of nature in, in using magic, as it were, using technologies. And so the combination of using a kind of tech to reshape nature, I think, is in many ways the earliest form of the kind of thing that I was exploring here. And so when, when we were talking to you in 2015, you were reading Frankenstein does that story function within that within that uh, ancient technology that the the golem stories are talking about? I think it's a little bit different. I, I know that they're often combined because we're talking about sort of the creation of life, but but Frankenstein isn't created from nothing. I think Frankenstein, at least in the novel, his intention was immortality. He wanted to see if he could return dead tissue to life for the purposes of making us so that we never had to die, that we could just always be regenerated using this technology that he came up with. Now, obviously, it very much connects to the idea of um, of, of, of God and the divine, but, you know, the, the subtitle, uh, Prometheus Unbound, is about stealing fire from heaven, which is almost about using the same kind of tech that the gods use. It's not called Genesis Unbound, right? It's not about creating life from nothing. It's about repurposing some divine element towards some 
new purpose in a way that we it should not be used or is verboten or that we would be would consider sinful. The golem in many ways is about actively trying to imitate part of what God is able to do by taking the dust of the earth like Adam and turning it into a human figure, which then can, you know, sort of have some independence. The thing about the golem is because the rabbi isn't God, it is not really much it can do. It's mute. This most of the stories of the golem, the golems can't talk. And that was probably, at least according to the story of Genesis, one of Adam's most important things that he did was, quote, name the animals and flora and fauna. The golem can't do that. So it's in many ways just sort of a shadow of um, God's sort of creative power. I don't recall if your book got into like this this uh, Silicon Valley uh artificial intelligence cult at all i mean so that it just tickles me into into me thinking about you know the same thing where um it seems like and i can't think of the gentleman's name but that you know the the coming singularity and uh is it like uh oh kurt kurt um yeah kurtzweil that's that's it yeah did you did did you write it all about that in the book no, because, you know, I'm, I was really, I mean, just, I, I touch on things a little bit only because we're talking, there's a little bit where some of this stuff tracks with post-humanism um, and transhumanism because we're, we're dealing with the notion that consciousness may indeed live outside of the body, uh, live outside the brain, and that it could somehow be downloaded or that it can somehow be um, enhanced in a way that uh, gives us a kind of, uh, again, this kind of uh, almost a spiritual immortality. I mean, I think you know, transhumanists at some level, whether they say it or not, are accepting some notion of soul, at least in a classical sense, right? That there's this thing that, this energy that powers us, that, that can be transferred from creature to machine. Um, but, you know, again, I was very much focused here on the relationship between a more um, direct, almost religious uh, or supernatural notion of spirit, which I don't think Kurzweil himself would say that he has. Yeah, and it seems like uh, there was, I don't, for whatever reason, my own impression is that some of these more millennial type, you know, philosophies have, it seems like things are kind of quiet as far as uh, spiritual zeitgeists are are going <laughs> but um oh yeah you that, think things are quiet you say in terms of a spiritual zeitgeist well yeah it seemed like there was a lot of noise up to 2012 and then after that it just seemed like we went to more of a political so we went from kind of a spiritual thing to more of a tribal thing where it's, it seems like people are organizing based on uh more of you know, tribal separation type beliefs. Yeah, but I do think that that um, politics often drive a spiritual uh, desire. So I think we saw that with the occult revival in the 18th, I'm sorry, the late 19th century, uh, you know, during the time of like the, the spiritualists, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, the Theosophists, you know, a lot of this was coming out of sort of fear of what Freud and Darwin were giving, you know, to us in terms of what we are and what, what we can be and wanting a more sort of rationalized uh, spiritual life that wasn't dependent on traditional and mainstream uh, Christian 
norms. And in the 60s, you know, the politics of the of the Vietnam War and sexism and racism prompted a lot of this psychedelic uh, spiritual exploration, again, seeing that what people viewed as sort of normative Judeo-Christian values had failed um, and were seeking some other spiritual uh, experience. And I think we're seeing that today, the rise of uh, interest in witchcraft. I mean, I, I, over Halloween, I think every major newspaper and website had an article on the rise of an interest in Wicca. Um, there's an incredible number of books that were published last year on witchcraft. Um, there was a uh, very um, popular book that came out by this um, uh, um, fellow named Michael Hughes about sort of uh, using magic as a political uh, tool. So I think that, you know, in fact, we are experiencing in many ways another, what I would call an occult revival. We're seeing it in music. Um, a lot of, you know, even just bands doing that in a cheeky, ironic way are, are drawing on, um, you know, spiritual occult themes. And I think that um, you're seeing a lot of intersection, too, with the relationship between uh, occultism and fascism. There was a there's a website called The Quietest that just recently uh, put up a couple of articles, sort of exposés on how um, a call, uh, sort of the relationship between occultism and fascism and the infiltration of these groups into underground music. So I actually do think that there is another zeitgeist right now, but it absolutely is being driven by politics because people are, for whatever reason, either because they're afraid or they feel empowered, um, are channeling new spiritual identities to make sense of that. Did you happen to see... Kurt Anderson's book, it's called Fantasyland, it came out maybe... Yes, yep, yep. But it's interesting because I, I think th that really was trying to just chuck all the spiritual stuff in in the trash completely and, you know, blamed, you know, the whole 60s for where we found ourselves with our current political situation. But it's interesting to mm -hmm. me that it, it seems like the book just kind of fell flat, whereas I really felt like this year... There was so I I do uh, I do sense that there's an openness to so there was a lot of really good books this year you know yours included in mm -hmm. you know Gary Lockman and Dean Radin uh, Eric Wargo even Michael Pollan wrote this really open-minded book about psychedelics and I just felt like this this was a really interesting year in terms of you know considering other viewpoints uh, non-rational viewpoints. Yeah, for sure. Yep. Yeah, uh, Mitch Horowitz's book on um, uh, the miracle uh, cure that he wrote is uh, incredibly popular right now. Dean Radin's book, is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yep. So, yeah, it, it seems like there is a willingness to consider non-materialistic points of view or just, you know, I don't even know... Oh, the Miracle Club. By the way, I don't want to get that wrong. That's Mitch's book, <laughs> yeah. not the Miracle Cure. <laughs> <laughs> so another facet of your your book that I that I really appreciated is this idea of the uncanny. Where I had this experience at Halloween, where there there was this like skeleton thing. Technology is so good now that. Uh, and so cheap that you could put things out on the sidewalk and you don't know, like I didn't, I couldn't tell if there was a person in this, if it was a little kid, 
you know, the way it was moving seemed too real, but I just couldn't sense consciousness in there. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, talk a little bit about your, I mean, so automatons are so fascinating. What was, what were they trying to do with those back in the, you know, that was the, was it the early 19th century when those were becoming active? No, we're, we're really going into the 18th. We're going into the late 1700s, um, early 1800s. In fact, um, a lot of it comes out of the notion, well, first of all, an increase in um, very complex clockwork mechanisms and uh, a little bit of what Descartes had to say about the human being as sort of a, a machine that was sort of powered by spirit, as it were. And this idea that we are sort of just a a meat machine, why not be able to replicate it? And, and so a lot of these um, clockmakers began developing and inventing these really beautiful and wondrous creations. There's a swan, there's the, the, the little boy who writes that was influenced um, the book Hugo and the related movie. There's a fellow who draws. They have a sister who can play the harpsichord. There was a duck that you could watch eat food and digest it. All, there's a, all these wondrous devices, and it was partly to see if we could indeed, by using technology, create the functions of the human being, the bodily functions of the human being. But for many people, this was not to, – to have a human function without spirit is a bad idea. And so there's a lot of superstitious around these, around these devices that they were powered by a demonic force or – or that maybe they shouldn't even be done, but it was a lot of it had to do with this idea that they could trick us. That what if it came to a point where we couldn't tell if something was real or not? There's a very famous uh, story by uh, E.T.A. Hoffman called The Sandman, and it's about a man who essentially falls in love with a with a with a doll that was created through some very strange alchemical processes. And when he discovers that it's not real, he kills himself. And the end of the story is how uh, the people of the of the community start to worry that their neighbors might be, in fact, um, an, an automaton. And so it, this was a very much an influence of Freud's idea of the uncanny valley, that there are these that we have these relationships sometimes with these technological devices where there's a sort of an uncertainty. We're drawn to them, but we're also terrified of them. They intrigue us and yet they repulse us and they seem to blur the line of what is real and what is not real. And for many people to blur that line is to incite a kind of religious dread a kind of sense that there's something demonic at play. Yeah, I think our own uh, modern response with that is uh, when they make those anim- commuter animated films that are that are too good. The animation is too good, but there's a lifelessness in the eyes. Have you have you read about that? Yes. Oh, yes. Exactly. Yeah, I can't watch. Um, I can't watch that movie Polar Express for that reason. I find it just utterly talk about the uncanny valley i it's it it chills me to try to watch that movie <laughs> but i think if if you make them cartoonish enough then we're we're accepting so like uh like shrek or some of these other ones you know that 
they're clearly cartoons and well like, that's my position i want my animation to look animated i want to see not the i don't want to see the um, technical prowess of making it look real i want to see the beautiful artists rendering of these wonderful things that's why i love the style for example of the incredibles you know everything is so beautifully exaggerated you know you're watching a cartoon but it's just magnificent yeah well, so you introduced me. I mean, I guess it seemed like with within the rock and roll world, there was this period that went through, and they thought there was you know secret messages on records, or that the, the devil was coming through somehow. Uh, you, you introduced me to this. Is it EVP? What is what is that? Uh, EVP is electronic voice phenomena, and it's an idea and a, um, and a study and a that spirits, however you want to define that can communicate with us through electronic devices like radios, tape recorders, white noise machines. So there's a whole culture of people, you know, inventing and making and using these devices to try to capture what they believe are the sounds of, um, or the voices of either spirits or maybe interdimensional um, entities. Some people even believe that they're picking up um, uh, aliens, but for the most part, it's this idea that the disembodied consciousness of the dead um, is basically seeking out technologies that will allow them to communicate with us. And, um, you know, before we used to have to use things like rely on dreams or visions, or later we started having these very early, which again, I would call kind of forms of tech like scene stones, like John Dee, a magician who was the astrologer for Queen Elizabeth, used his um, scene stones, which you can see in the um, in the uh, museum in in England. They have these objects, um, but now people believe as our technology increases that we can be even more adept at uh, communication with the otherworldly. And and in the book you have a, an image of a whole bunch of technology on your desk, and you were trying to accomplish the same thing then. Yeah, I wanted to try to experiment. I was open enough to the idea that wanted to see what would happen. What I found again more than actually feeling like I was communicating with spirits, I did feel though like I was entering into a very enchanted state of mind that even allowed for the question of possibility that that could imagine these things happening by breaking open a radio and hacking it a little bit to turn it into to, to have it do something different which is based on a schematic of something called a ghost box for example or to use a tape recorder to um, record in an empty room for some time and come back and listen to it and amplify the sounds using some software to see if anything can be picked up and just being inside of that process and doing that and, and investigating this and imagining possibilities was delightful, whether or not anything happened or not. Do you think, I mean, so you hear stories about certain films where it's almost like the film itself becomes the medium to the other world. I think uh, maybe The Exorcist or Poltergeist. Do you think it's a similar mm -hmm. phenomenon there where uh, somehow their ritual of contacting the other side in this illusory way actually opens a portal somehow? 
Well, if you're asking me, does it literally open a portal? I'm not sure I can answer that question. That, um, but I can say that certainly the, the 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 way in which film works on our imaginations and on our consciousness can certainly make us feel that way. Um, but I'm not really one to answer the question of whether or not um, that is literally true or not. Have you heard stories like that where, you know, strangeness occurs on set and it all of a sudden... No, absolutely. Yeah, the whole that poltergeist was supposedly cursed. Um, the girl who played the the youngest daughter died um, shortly thereafter, um, sadly. Um, there's all kinds of stories about uh, Rosemary's baby. Um, so, yeah, I mean, all of these... Yeah, The Exorcist, of course. Um, all of these films sort of have... A lot of that. We've, I think we've lost a little bit of that. I don't think we still, the same way we don't look for hidden messages and records, I don't think we're doing that as much with films anymore. These sort of these key films like The Exorcist that where a lot of that energy was channeled, particularly because of the time. You know, this was in the 1970s, post-60s. We were coming out of the, the psychedelic generation and there was a little bit more fear and cynicism and the devil was ascendant in pop culture in many ways. And so, um, but I don't, I, I you know, my understanding is people watching the movies like Paranormal, um, what's that film called? Um, you know, these sort of uh, uh, found footage films. Yeah. Um, but people aren't necessarily having the same thing, although there is this whole Slender Man myth, right, um, that people have somewhat taken seriously. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, yeah, back to what the point that I was making about uh, Zeitgeist, it seems like... Th- a film like Sabrina that came out at Halloween, it was draped in, you know, the costumes of the occult. Like it looked, it looked really, no, authentic. it was great. Yeah. yeah it looked authentic. But as far as like, uh, like you're saying, like going home and spinning records to find the voices, like I, it seems like there could be some really interesting apps on our phones for spiritual contact, <laughs> but you know, maybe that's an untapped market there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> With tarot cards, I mean, so like all the, it seems like we've always had some kind of technology. I, I just, I wonder if, if right, like if there's just a, not as much interest in the, in the other world currently or. Well, again, I, I think that I, 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 like I said, I would, I would respectfully disagree that maybe it's not the other world in a supernatural sense, but certainly in the form of, of magic and, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, again, I mean, I'm, I think looking at all the work that Mitch Horowitz is doing and Deaton Raid and Gary Lagman, I mean, all the guests you have on your show, it seems to me that there's, this is still something. I think we're just looking for it in different ways. I don't think we're looking for it necessarily in our movies, but um, certainly, you know, you can just, just go onto your, your cell phone and go to the app store and look up uh, ghost finders. And there's, hundreds and hundreds of these apps <laughs> right and these ghost hunter tv shows are still popular yeah okay well so your your this book strange frequencies grew out of uh season of the witch did is your next book somehow in the in the last chapter or is it somehow you know do you where are you headed now nowadays i'm not i'm not sure yet that's a good question i think i'm going to keep that uh, close to the chest at this point okay what what's getting you excited? What do you what do you enjoy reading? 
right now, what there's uh, well, there's a lot of things I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to um, my friend Pam Grossman's book on witchcraft that's coming out soon. I read I read a lot of um, fiction. There was a wonderful book that dealt with sort of occultism and magic called The Fisherman. Uh, by John Lanigan, uh, wonderful uh, novel. I just finished that novel, Lovecraft Country, oh, yeah. by Matt Ruff, which yeah. really great. Which, you know, so it takes love, the Lovecraft mythos and uh, turns it into um, sort of a racist. Uh, you know, really digs down into that aspect of, of Lovecraft's work. And um, yeah, so I'm you know a big reader and always I'm always on the lookout for interesting things. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you for sharing it with us. Of course. Thank you for inviting me again. You bet. You've been listening to Peter Biebergall on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio on thesyncbook.com. Be sure and check out his books, and we will link to them. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests to check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast, check out others. As currently all the SyncBook Radio archives are free. We also feature a great search engine to help you find you what you need. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. And if compelled, click on the support link at the bottom of the page. Thanks so much. And Dr. Jones, we've heard a lot about you, professor of archaeology, expert on the occult. <laughs> and how does one say it? Obtainer of rare antiquities. <laughs> Don't even gotta try